The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Chapter 1, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge and of the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and his excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities... You will never fall. For in this way there will, be rich, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in truth you, that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have, we have gathered today to worship you. We've gathered uh, as your people and we've gathered around your word. It's your word which is the vehicle through which you've spoken to us and you still speak to us. As we open up this, this Bible and we begin to read the words, 
we hear from you. The very God of the universe, our creator, the one who has made us, the one who has breathed life into us, the one who sustains us each and every day, the one who provides for our needs every day, the one who cares for us, the one who loves us, the one who has sent his only begotten Son to die in our place so that we might be forgiven and that we might spend eternity with you. There is none like you, O God. There is no one that has ever been. There is no one that ever will be this like you. You are altogether exalted above everything and everyone. And yet you would speak to us. You would move men by your Spirit to write down words many years ago that are your words. This morning we have that wonderful treasure before us. And so we trust this morning, God, that as we, as we look to your word, you will, by your spirit, open our hearts to understand what's written. That you would speak to us your truth, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would, through your word, exalt your son Jesus, that all men might be drawn to him, that we might know him and be known by him. We've come this morning, Lord, from all sorts of walks of life. And folks have come here having all had different experiences this week. And some have come with joy and with excitement on their hearts. Some have come with sadness and griefs that they bear. Some have come having had a week of spiritual victory. Others have come are coming off this morning a week of spiritual defeat. Lord, we don't know experiences of each and every person around us this morning, but you know every heart in this room, and you know specifically what each of us need this morning. For those who come having fallen into sin this week, Lord, we pray that they would find forgiveness full and free from you. For those who've come discouraged, we pray that you would lift up their spirit and lift up their head and bring encouragement to their hearts. For those who have very real needs in their life, we pray that you would show yourself to be their full and complete supply. For those who just need to feel loved this morning, I pray, God, that you would make yourself and your great love known to them, that they would feel that and experience it today. Do your work among us as we open your word and study, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. This morning we'll begin to look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It will take us two Sundays to, to make our way through the entire text. But we'll begin this morning. So let's read together again, verses 1 through 4. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. For His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us 
His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Now that's a mouthful, isn't it? Just reading verses, the first four verses, I mean, it is a mouthful. And it is not super clear, just on a quick reading, exactly all of what Peter wants to convey in this first section. And so it's going to take us a little time and a little energy to to sort of parse this apart and figure out exactly what it is that Peter is after here in these first four verses. But we'll do that this morning. I want to just begin by asking you a simple question this morning. If somebody were to pull you aside uh, as you're walking out of the, the sanctuary this morning and say to you, could you just tell me what is the essence of being a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? How, what, is, what, is, what is a Christian? How would you define that? How would you answer that question? And you would think that it's a question that anyone who is a Christian should be able to just sort of pop off an answer right off of the tip of their tongue. But I suspect as I drop that question on you, uh, and were someone to put you on the spot and ask you that, you might find it a little more challenging to answer than it seems. What does it mean to be a Christian? What is the essence of being a Christian? What does it truly mean to, to be a Christian? People have answered that question all sorts of ways throughout history, uh, right ways and wrong ways. And in our culture today, there are people who answer it the right way and people who answer it the wrong way. But it's important for us, at least, to gain some sense for an answer to that question. What does it mean to be a Christian? And if we could summarize everything that Peter is talking about in these first four verses, I would suggest to you that he is providing for us a way to answer that question. Peter is writing a letter, as we talked about last week. He's writing a letter to people to whom he's written a previous letter. And what we know about these people is that they are Christians. And Peter identifies here at the, the, at the very beginning, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who, and he goes on to those four verses to describe these people to whom he's writing. We know that they're Christians, and so all of these first four verses are Peter's way of describing their Christianity. Now, in case you weren't with us last week, we just want to quickly remember what this book is about and what the theme is, and that's important for us interpreting these first four verses. Peter is writing this letter somewhere around AD 65, 66. He's writing from Rome, and he's writing to Christians who are in northern Asia Minor. There's a purpose and a theme that I just wanted to show you this morning by way of reminder for those of you who were here last week. The purpose of this letter is, is to fortify believers against false teachers. That's what Peter is after in this whole letter. And so everything revolves or it orbits around that issue. Peter knows he's about to die. Christ has made known to him that he's about to die in some way, shape, or form. Sometime soon, he's going to be out of here. He's going to be gone. And his great concern for those whom he has discipled and been building up in their faith, his great concern is that after he's dead, false teachers who have already begun to try to do their work will infiltrate the body of Christ with false doctrine and heresy and will lure these brothers and sisters away from the truth, deceive them by lies. And so his great concern is that that before he dies, he is concerned that he write to them and that he fortify them, that he warn them against this problem and that he strengthen them and solidify their foundation and their faith so that when the false teachers come along, they'll be secure. And as he says later in the letter, they won't lose their stability and be drawn away. They won't be knocked off balance and fooled by the false teachers. 
In fact, all of chapter 2 is about false teaching and false teachers and what they're like and what they do and how they try to lure God's people away. So the whole letter is, is, is geared toward fortifying believers against false teachers. And the theme we decided last week was simply this, Christian living in a heretical world. First Peter, the theme was Christian living in a hostile world. It was all about persecution from the outside. Second Peter is all about heresy on the inside. So you see how Peter in these two letters is building up these believers so that they can be stable when he's gone. So that even if pressure comes from the outside, they'll stand. And if pressure comes from the inside, they'll know how to handle it. And so that's what this letter is all about. And as before Peter launches into talking about the false teachers and all of their particular character and how they're going to try to lure God's people away... He needs to remind them of the foundation of their faith. He needs to make sure that these believers are secure in the fact that they're Christians. They need to understand the reality of what it means to know Christ. And they need to be sure that that that's the, the description of their life. You see, standing up to false teachers and and to heresy is really two parts. There's a part of, number one, you need to understand what the truth faith look, looks like and make sure you belong to it. And Secondarily, you then need to understand false teachers and what they do and what they're like so that they can be rejected outright. But you have to have both parts. If you don't have both parts, you don't stand. You're susceptible. You're sitting ducks. And so this question of what does it mean to be a Christian is embodied in these first four verses. And really throughout this whole first chapter, that's what Peter is doing. He's reminding them of the essence of being a Christian and what it is. And he's telling them, you need to remember these things. And down a little further on, he says, you need to make, make, uh, make sure that your calling and election are sure. Make effort to, 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 to know that you belong to Christ. Because if you don't, you'll be fooled. So what is the essence of being a Christian? That's what we're looking at. If you want to call it a a little gospel, that's what we find here in these first four verses. Now, it's interesting, as I was doing a little bit of surfing for articles this week, that I ran across two articles, uh, sort of back-to-back, and I found it kind of interesting. The first article is entitled this. Poll. Most Americans say they're Christians. Now, you know that, right? You've probably seen these polls overall. People survey um, people, you know, a particular selection of of folks across the country from various age groups and socioeconomic status and so forth and uh, do these religious surveys. Well, this particular poll, this was an ABC article, by the way, ABC News article. Um, It it tells us in this article, this particular study, 83% of Americans identify themselves as Christians. let, Let that sink in for a minute. 83% of Americans identify themselves as Christians. Let's let's do a quick survey in in our room here. Okay? It's going to be a true or false survey. How many of you believe that that statistic is true? 83% of Americans are Christians. How many of you believe it's false? Okay. Well, that's good. Because I agree with the second group. It just stands to reason, right? We're talking amongst ourselves here, church people. It just stands to reason, if 83% of Americans were Christian, America would look drastically different than it looks. Isn't that fair to say? Okay. So we know this is bogus. So we've got to figure out, why do 83% think that they're Christians? This is no small matter. 83% of the people around us think that they're Christians. 
But you and I know from experience that's not possible to be true. I've seen some other studies that say drop it down to about 75. But again, 75%. We're still shooting way high. What was fascinating to me is after seeing poll, most Americans say they're Christians, the next article I ran across was this. Survey finds most American Christians are actually heretics. <laughs> I thought, okay, all right. That's the answer to that, I think. Um, Fascinating article by somebody named Shane Morris, who I've never heard of before. I'm going to give you a couple of excerpts of this, and I think you'll understand the, the, that he does expose the, the problem with survey number one. Let me just, I'm not going to read the whole article, but certain parts of it. He begins by saying evangelical writer Eric Metaxas remarked on Breakpoint last week that if Americans took a theology exam, their only hope of passing would be if God graded on the curve. He's right. In knowing both the content of the Bible and doctrinal foundations of Christianity, we Americans aren't just at the bottom of our class. We are, as uh, Ross Duthart argues in his book, Bad Religion, a nation of heretics. He refers to a survey of 3,000 people conducted by Lifeway uh, Research and commissioned by Ligonier Ministries. And he goes on to talk about this statistic that most Americans identify themselves as Christian, but he goes on to break out... Uh, how they answered other questions related to that faith. And it becomes very obvious that they haven't a clue what it means to be a Christian, most of the people who responded positively. The the good part is, if you call this good, at the beginning, uh, a a section he titles, We're an Embarrassment to Heretics Everywhere. Um, Seven out of ten respondents uh, affirm the doctrine of the Trinity. All right, get this. Seventy percent of those who say they're Christian... 70% of those affirm the doctrine of the Trinity. That means 30% of the people who identify themselves as Christian deny the Trinity. That's the best of the the statistics here, just so you'll know. Um, It goes on to say, um, let me just give you a couple. The the response to other questions were no less heterodox or headache-inducing. 70% of participants who ranged across socioeconomic and racial backgrounds agreed that there's only one true God. That's good. 70% of participants, there's only one true God. Yet, 64% also thought that God accepts the worship of all religions, including those that believe in many gods. All right, let that sink in for just a minute. I'm not the smartest guy in the room. 70% believe that there's only one true God. And 64% think that God accepts the worship of all religions, even those that believe in many gods. How is that possible to hold both of those views? at this. Two-thirds admitted that everyone sins a little bit. Two-thirds admitted that everyone sins. I want to know that other third. Two-thirds admitted that everyone sins a little bit, but still insisted that most people are good by nature. Over half of them said it's fair for God to exercise his wrath against sin, but seemed to waffle about which sins deserved wrath. In parentheses, not theirs. 74% said, quote, the smallest sins don't warrant eternal damnation. A full 60% agreed that everyone eventually goes to heaven. 60%. But half of those surveyed also checked the box saying that only those who believe in Jesus will be saved. That's my response to you, Tracy. Okay, I'm going to say it to you again. 60% agree 
everyone eventually goes to heaven. 50% also agree that only those who believe in Jesus will be saved. Now, the writer of this article says this. So either these folks are saying everyone will eventually believe in Jesus, or they hired a monkey to take the survey for them. I think it's the second one, don't you? I mean, this article goes on and on for a page and a half of just the mind-boggling beliefs that the 83% who identify themselves as Christians hold. And most of them are just as contradictory as the samples I've given you. I'll try and post that article for you on um, the, the Facebook page later so you can read the whole thing. It, if it wasn't so sad, it would be funny. But it exposes for us the reality of why Peter's introduction to this letter matters, particularly in our day and in our culture. Because most everyone thinks they're Christians, and yet most everyone who thinks they're Christian has no idea what it means to be a Christian or even what Christians believe. Peter was concerned about that problem coming about. And he was concerned that the people who received his letter would not be among those whose sound is foolish as those who surveyed this in our culture. And my concern as a pastor is that we as a church understand these things. And that you, for the sake of your own soul, understand it. And so we're going to look this morning at what does it mean to be a Christian? What does that look like based on these first four verses of Peter? Now let me just say this as we get into this, this passage. The first four verses are, are complicated as far as grammar and interpretation goes. You could probably pick that up from the English translation. In Greek, it's also challenging. So when you see inter, uh, uh, translations of this, they vary rather widely. Um, so what I'm going to do, instead of just kind of working systematically verse by verse, is I'm going to zoom out. I'm going to try and organize what Peter is saying here in, in sort of a linear fashion, which is not exactly the way he lays it out, but it's the way that will most help be, be most helpful, I think, for you and I to grasp it. Is that fair enough? Are you good with that? So that means we're going to kind of jump around in the text a bit instead of going, you know, one, two, three, four. You with me? Okay. Thank you. One person is with me, and I'm so happy. I'm batting ahead of my average. All right. Peter introduces himself at the very beginning. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Two things I quickly want to point out in verse 1 in Peter's introduction. Peter introduces himself in a particularly interesting fashion. He identifies himself two ways. He is a servant and what? And an apostle of Jesus Christ. A servant, which could be translated slave, because that's what the Greek word means, doulos, slave, so Peter says, I'm the guy writing, I'm a slave, and I'm an apostle. That's an interesting way of introducing yourself, because it seems to be two ends of opposite ends of the spectrum. And what Peter is wanting to do is he's wanting to communicate both his humility and his authority. Peter was a humble man, but he was also a man who spoke with authority. On the one hand, he identified himself the same way the Apostle Paul identified himself. He's, he's nothing more than a slave for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a person who is owned by Christ. A person who lives and operates at the disposal of his master. That's what a slave is. A slave is someone who is possessed by someone else, who is at the disposal of someone else, who owes unquestioned obedience to someone else, who is constantly in the service of someone else. And, Paul, and Peter says, that's who I am. I'm a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. He owns me. I'm at his disposal. He has my unquestioned obedience, and I'm constantly about his service. I'm his slave. That's who I am. 
And it's from that position that I write to you. But he goes on to say, I'm also an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that's not a small matter. An apostle is one who is sent forth by Christ Himself. It's somebody who's divinely commissioned to witness for the risen Christ. And to be an apostle, you had to personally witness the risen Christ. And Peter had. You, you heard that as we read through the first chapter, didn't you? When he talks about, we didn't come after you with the, you know, these made-up myths. We saw Him. We were on the mountain with Him. Do you remember Peter saying that in 1 Peter chapter 1? So Peter wants to establish, he's going to come at false teachers. So he needs these believers to understand, I am with you. Just like you, I'm a slave to Christ. But I have the authority to speak about what Christianity is. And I have the authority to, to speak against heretics because I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so it's a beautiful way that Peter introduces himself. A slave and an apostle. That's who he is. And he's writing to believers. Just a note here, we won't dwell on this at the moment, but at the end of verse 1, you see this, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The way that's translated is, in English is good. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those two words, God and Savior, both identifying Jesus Christ. Christ is both our Savior and He is God. It is one of the clearest texts in the New Testament that ascribe divinity to Jesus that point to the fact that Christ is not just a man, but He is also God. He's not just the human who died on the cross as a Savior, but He is God incarnate doing that. Jesus is God. The deity of Christ, Peter lays out right at the very beginning. But we don't want to dwell on that this morning. We want to get to what Peter is after. What is a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? And in verses 2 and 3, we see how Peter sort of lays this out. Listen to verses 2 and 3. May grace and peace be multiplied to you, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. For His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. What does it mean to be a Christian? What is a Christian? Peter is laying out for us this definition for a Christian. A Christian is one who knows Jesus Christ and is known by Him. That's what a Christian is. It's someone who knows Jesus Christ and is known by Him. That word, know, and knowledge is thematic all throughout Second Peter. And it is a very important word because it describes the foundation of what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to know Christ. To be a Christian is to be known by Christ. And Peter says that here at the beginning. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. And he goes on to say... Um, his, his divine power is granted to us all things, and He's granted it through the knowledge of Him, through knowing Christ, knowing the One who called us. To know Christ and to be known by Him. These are not two separate things. To know Christ and to be known by Him are flip two sides of the same coin. There is nobody who knows Christ but isn't known by Him. There's nobody who's known by Christ but doesn't know Him. A Christian is someone for whom both terms apply. And this word know here is not a word that just talks about intellectual information. It's not just about mental knowledge, although it does include that. Being a Christian does mean knowing truth, does mean knowing certain things intellectually, but that's not the, the full extent of this word. So to know, as Peter uses it, and as many of the other biblical writers use it, implies a personal, complete knowledge. A personal, complete, relational 
knowledge. It includes knowing the truth about Christ, but it's not just a passive awareness. It's not simply knowing information about Him. It implies an intimate and personal relationship. That's what it means to know Christ. It's not just about knowing Bible verses. It's not just about knowing things about Him. It's not knowing, just being able to answer intellectually questions about Jesus. Do you understand that there are people who know an awful lot about the Lord Jesus Christ, who could answer a theology quiz just perfectly, but they don't know Christ. They know about Him. They have information about Him. They can answer questions about Him. They know the historical story of Him. That maybe they've even studied some theology and understand mentally some things about Him. But they don't know Him in the way Peter means it. This knowing is, is a term that, 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 that conveys a personal, intimate relationship that goes beyond just mental. There's a, there's a whole concept in the Old Testament, that this, this, a whole background that builds this concept. I'll, I'll just kind of do a quick little tour through that. When we look to the Old Testament, we see all, all, this time, all the time these phrases uh, talking about knowing the Lord or knowing God. Let me give you a few examples. And all of them mean that it was just a way of the Old Testament writer expressing to be in a relationship with him. Listen to some of these. Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went, to see, went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord. Do you remember this encounter? You go to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? What does he say for that? I do not know the Lord. I don't know him. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. What is Pharaoh saying? Is he saying he's not aware of the God of the Israelites who have been living under his nose for generations? He's not saying that he's not aware of their God. He's saying what? I don't know him. I have no relationship to him. He has no authority over me. I have not submitted to him in any way. It's more than just knowing something in your mind. It's relational. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. What does it mean to be a worthless man? They did not know the Lord. Their father knew the Lord, but they did not know the Lord. What does that mean? These are sons of a priest. They grew up in a priest's home. They went to the worship all the time at the temple. They, they heard all of the preaching at the temple. They knew a lot about God. But the description of their life is that as human beings, they did not what? They didn't know Him. They knew about Him, but they didn't know Him. He held no sway over their lives. They had no relationship personally with Him. It was all mental. Judges chapter 2, verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who what? Did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. The writer of Judges is going to describe the chaos that ensues in Israel after the generation who knew the Lord died, and another generation rose up who didn't know the Lord. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and following. For this is the covenant that I'll make. This is about the new covenant that that Jeremiah is prophesying. For this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why won't they be doing that? 
Well, they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. There's coming a day, Jeremiah says, when a new covenant is going to be made with Israel. And in that day, nobody's going to have to go around telling people, you need to know the Lord. Why won't they have to tell that? Because they'll all know Him. What does it mean to know God? Well, here in Jeremiah's text... Knowing God is equated with having His law written within on the heart. It's equated with being the people of God, being His people and Him being their God. It's equated with having sins forgiven and sins being remembered no more. That's all a part of the equation of knowing God. Clear Old Testament idea is that knowing God means being in a right relationship with Him. It's relational as much as it is intellectual. That New Testament that the imagery is carried right over into the New Testament. When we see Matthew chapter one verses twenty four and twenty five, and the birth narratives of Jesus when Joseph woke up from his sleep. You, Joseph, Mary, are you with me? Christmas. I know we're a long ways away. You with me? When Joseph woke up from his sleep, as he did, the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Now, what in the world does that mean? He didn't. Know, he knew her not. That sounds King James-ish, right? That means he never he didn't sleep with her. There was no intimacy between the two of them. The same word, no, is translated to convey that idea. It involves an intimate, personal sort of a relationship. You understand that there's lots of ways of knowing. I know you. And when I look out across this room, I know different people at different levels. Some of you, I just know your face. Others of uh, of you, I know you because we've experienced pieces of life together. But I don't know any of you like I know my wife. Praise the Lord, right? All God's people said amen. Thank you. Come on with me here. I know her in a way that I don't know anyone else. I know her. There's an intimacy of relationship that exists between the two of us that is unlike any other relationship in my life. That concept of knowing involves an intimate, personal relationship. We see that in Matthew chapter 1. John chapter 10, verse 14. This is Jesus speaking. When, when I am the good shepherd, Jesus said, I, what does he say? I know my own. I know them. And it doesn't mean I just know who they are. I know them. And my own what? They know me. What does it mean to belong to Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian? It means... To know Him and to be known by Him. And Jesus says, I know them just like the Father knows me and I know the Father. And if you understand, you remember our series on the Trinity, right? When we talked about the Father and the Son, there's this perfect, intimate union between the Father and the Son. Perfect knowing of one another, relationally. And Jesus says, that's how my relationship is with my people. They know me. They belong to me. They are intimately connected to me. And I know them. There's an unbreakable bond between us that can't be shattered. John chapter 10, a little further down, verse 25 and following. Listen, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you don't believe because you are not among my sheep. Get this. My sheep hear my voice and I I know them. And they follow me. That's a beautiful picture of Jesus, the great shepherd. I know my sheep, and they know me. When I speak, they hear, and they follow. 
It's the shepherd who walks out into a field full of sheep and he calls out their names and only the sheep that belong to him perk up and listen and come. I take my dog to the dog park sometimes. Do you have one of those? Do you take him to the dog park? Dog's everywhere. I call her name, no other dog comes. Praise the Lord, right? But I call her name, she perks up. She doesn't always come, but she perks up. She knows her name. I know her. And she knows I'm calling. It's the obedience part that's a little different. That's what Jesus said. I know my own sheep. I know them. I call them, and they know me. If you want to get really personal with what this means, look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and 23. And you want to see what's on the line here with understanding this? Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven, on that day, meaning the last day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. To be a Christian is to know Christ and be known by Him. And this is a penetrating passage because the people of whom Christ speaks here are clearly aware of Christ. And they clearly know things about Him. In fact, they've been going about their lives doing things how? In His name. In His name. They've been doing things like prophesying and mighty works and casting out demons. They certainly thought they were right with Him. But His evaluation of them is what? I didn't know you. You didn't know me. There's a lot at stake in understanding what it means to know Jesus. In fact, eternity is on the line when it comes down to the personal perspective of our life before the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when we stand before the Lord Jesus one day, it's either going to be He knew us or He didn't. It's either going to be we knew Him or we didn't. So we better understand what that means. And if you can get anything this morning, you need to get it. It's a whole lot more than just knowing stuff in your brains. It involves a relationship with Him. And we're going to flesh that out some more this morning. It involves knowing truth about Him. It's not divorced from that, but it also knows. It also involves knowing Him relationally, experiencing Him through a heart relationship. John MacArthur said this, The man's relation to God is not only described as knowing the truth about God, but it's knowing God through His truth. It's not just knowing the truth about Him, but it's knowing Him through His truth commentator by the name of Doug Moo said, wouldn't you like to have that name? Moo. Can you imagine the jokes you'd get as a kid? Um, He says this, in our day we are rightly warned about a danger of a sterile faith, of a head knowledge that never touches the heart. But we need to equally be careful of a heart knowledge that never touches the head. Too many Christians know too little about their faith. Well, the survey told us that. The biblical writers demand a knowledge of God that unites the head and the heart. I like how he says that. A knowledge of God that unites the head and the heart. One without the other is not complete. It's not knowing Christ. Both together completes the picture. So if knowing Christ is not some superficial, surface sort of a knowledge, if it's, if it's knowing truth about Him, and it's knowing Him relationally in a deep and intimate sense, what, what does that, how does that flesh out? What are some pieces and parts of knowing Christ? Well, thankfully, Peter gives us a few of them. 
What does it mean to know Christ? This is how we're going to do this. What does it mean to be a Christian? You got that answer a minute ago, and I know you memorized it when it was up on the screen, right? To know Christ. Let's just say it together. To be a Christian is to know Christ and be known by Him. Okay, you got one thing. If anybody ever asks you that, you got the answer, okay? I'm giving it to you, you can cheat on the test. The second question we need to ask then is, what does it mean to know Christ? If that's what being a Christian is, to know Christ, then what does it mean to know Him? Let's flesh that out. Peter does. I'm going to give you a list of three things that Peter sort of lays out as components of knowing Christ. The first is in verse 3. It is to be called by Him. To know Christ is to be called by Him. 2 Peter 1.3 His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. The first thing knowing Christ means, it means to be called by Christ. To be called by Him. To be called by Christ into relationship. We've already established that knowing Christ involves relationship. Well, how does one get into that relationship with Him? You get into that relationship by being called into it. By being invited into it. By Christ. There's only one way a person comes to know Christ. It's by being called by Him. Men don't simply wake up one day and decide, you know what, I think I'm going to just go run to Christ today. I want to be a Christian. That doesn't happen. They don't just by their own will and their own desire one day wake up and desire to live for Christ, to embrace Christ, to love Christ, to be in a relationship with Christ. We are not naturally drawn to Christ. He is the one who initiates the relationship with us. It's important. And the way He initiates it is by calling people to Himself. We saw that in John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. It's that same image of a shepherd calling out to his sheep. And those who belong to Him hear and they do what? They come. They come. And when we look at this word calling in Scripture, we see called, calling, call. There's two kinds of calls that are described in the New Testament. There's what we would sort of call the general call and something we would call an effective call. Another way of calling it the general call is a gospel call and there's an effective call. I need to explain the two of these things so you're not confused when you run across these words. There is... When we run across the New Testament, there's this general call. A definition for the general call is this. The general gospel invitation that goes to all people, which some people reject. Okay? Anytime someone preaches the gospel, they offer a general call or a gospel call. They tell, some, they tell you what it means to know Christ. They explain Christ and the resurrection and what it means to place your faith in them. And then they say something like, if today anyone who will come to Christ, will be received. Come to Jesus. That's a gospel call. Every time a preacher preaches the gospel, he offers some sort of a gospel call, or he should. And that's a call that goes out, and does everyone respond to that call every time? No, they don't. Some people do, some people don't. It's a general call to all people to believe on Christ and to know Christ. It's a general call that goes out to everyone. Some respond, some do not. An example of this, Matthew chapter 8, verse 28 through 30. This is Jesus speaking. He says to a crowd, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come to me, all who are, who are laboring and heavy burdens. Listen, come to me. Now, in that crowd that Jesus spoke to, did everyone come to him? No, they did not. It was a general call. It was a general offer to anyone who would respond. But most reject the general call. 
But that's not the only definition for a call in the New Testament. And it's not what Peter refers to here in First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter 1. There is also an effective call. And Wayne Grudem gives us a very helpful definition of this, which um, I'll just put up there for you. An effective call is an act of God the Father speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. Let me try to make it make sense this way. Anytime the gospel is preached, a general call goes out to everyone. But there's an effective call that goes out to a few. If you're here and you're a Christian this morning, at some point somebody brought the gospel to your attention and they put a general call out there for you to respond to Christ. When that happened, there was another call that took place. It was a personal call. It was a summons from the king of the universe that was personalized to you. And you knew in that moment that he was calling you. He wasn't just calling everybody, that he had your number. And that he was calling you to himself. And you knew that what was being told to you was true and that you needed to run to him. If you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. You've experienced that. That's the effective call. And that's what Peter's talking about here. The only way to know Christ is to experience the effective call. It's, it's to hear the gospel and then for the king of the universe to summon you personally to himself, to invite you to himself, to call you out from the crowd and say, come to me in such a way that you absolutely will come. That's the effective call. Romans 8, 29 through 30 kind of fleshed this out for us. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that... That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also did what? Oh, it's not up there. You don't know. Those whom he predestined, he called. He called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And Paul lays out for you this whole chain of salvation. It begins in eternity past when God foreknows people. There's that word know again. He determines beforehand to have a relationship with them. And those who he's determined to have a relationship with, at some point in time, they hear the gospel and he calls them with an effective call. And everyone that he calls with that effective call comes to him and finds justification. They become Christians. There's no one who's called but not justified. It is a summons of the king of the universe. And it has the power to bring about the response that it asks for. 1 Peter 2, 9. Listen to this First Peter, the first letter. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You know, if you're a Christian, you know what that means. There was a time in your life when you heard the gospel and you understood that you were a sinner trapped in a sinful lifestyle. And that you had no hope apart from Jesus Christ dying on the cross and shedding His blood on your behalf. And that your only hope was to run to Him. And in that moment, you heard Christ calling you, Come to Me, I'll give you what you don't have. Come to Me, I'll do for you what you can't do for yourself. Come to Me, I'll give you everything you need. And you came. That's the effective call. He called you out of your darkness and into His marvelous light. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. John chapter 6, verse 44 Jesus, no one can come to Me 
unless the Father who sent him draws me or calls me, calls calls him. Excuse me. Let me read that again. No one who no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him or calls him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Second Thessalonians chapter two fourteen. To this, Paul writes, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you get it? Paul is saying to believers, we came and we preached the gospel to you. And when we preached the gospel, God called you to himself through the gospel. Do you get it? That's the gospel call. Excuse me, that's the effective call. I confused my own self. That's awful. That's the effective call. I preach the gospel and offer the gospel call, but when I do that, God offers an effective call, particularly to individual people who then respond in faith and believe. And they come to know Christ. Coming to know Christ involves being called by Him. It involves being summoned by Him into relationship. It involves being invited by Him to know Him. To be a Christian is to know Christ. And to know Christ begins by being called by Him to Himself. One more thought here, and then we'll wrap this up. But it doesn't just stop there. To know Christ is to be called by Him, but it doesn't end there, because it tells us in First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter 1, 1, that there's another element to knowing Christ, and that is those whom He calls, He grants faith to believe. So to know Christ is to be called by Him, and it's also to be granted faith to believe in Him. Second Peter 1, 1, to those who have obtained a faith. Obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, he says. That word obtained would be better translated, have received a faith. Received a faith. So knowing Christ is an end with being called. That calling leads them to faith, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But even that faith to believe is what? It's something that we're given. It's not something we gen up. It's not a human work that we figure out on our own. The Christ who calls us and summons us to Himself also gives us the faith to believe. Do you see that? He also grants us the ability to grasp what He's saying and to believe in Him and to come. Faith here is... We might ask what is what's being referred to when He says faith. Those who have received a faith. It's simply the capacity to believe. The capacity to trust God. You know, most people in the culture in which we live, they have no capacity to believe God. They have no capacity to trust God. They have no desire. You can talk to them about the gospel, and it just it's in one ear and it's out the other. It just seems to them like a fairy tale, like a myth. It just seems, it just seems mystical and strange and weird and odd. And there's nothing within them naturally that says, yeah, that makes sense. That's the truth. Believe it. The Bible describes fallen man, lost man as being... Darkened, deaf to the gospel, blind to the beauty of his Savior, no desire to trust Christ, but only to love himself. And here's the idea. When Christ calls us to himself, he awakens our dead soul and gives us the faith to believe. So that at the end of the day, we can take absolutely no credit for believing in Christ. You get that? If you're a Christian here this morning, you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not because you're such a genius. That's not because you're such a purely righteous person. It's because Christ initiated a relationship with you and He provided you with the faith necessary to believe. He made the light bulb come on in your head. Does that make sense? You heard the gospel 
And it was like, ding, that's the truth. I believe that. I mean, you think about the, how absurd it sounds to a, to a lost person, to a dying culture. But there was this man who lived years ago. He claimed to be God. He was a good guy. He taught some really great things. Had a lot of followers. But ultimately, he was tried and put on a cross and crucified as a traitor. But, if you believe that his death somehow helps you out, that somehow his death can pay for your sins, if you believe that, and if you believe that he was God, then you can have eternal life, and your sins will be forgiven, and you'll be reconciled to your Creator. That sounds bizarre to someone who doesn't know Christ. It sounds like a fairy tale. It sounds like Aesop's fables. It sounds like, it sounds like all the mythical stuff from ancient Greece. Until, until Christ grants faith to the heart, and He opens the eyes to the reality of the truth. If you're a Christian here this morning, you're a Christian because you know Christ. And you came to know Him because He initiated a relationship with you. There was a day in your life when He called you to Himself. He summoned you into a relationship with Him. And in that moment, whatever you had heard about Christ up to that point and not believed, all of a sudden a light bulb came on. And in your mind, you understood that this is the truth. This is the truth. And I believe it. That was a gift from the Lord Jesus. It's a gift to you. It's a gift of faith. It's something that you received. Paul writes about it this way, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of your own works, so that no one may boast. At the end of the day, I can't boast about what a wonderful, godly person I am because I'm a Christian and somebody else isn't. I have nothing to boast about. All I did was receive a gift. I mean, where's the virtue in that? It's a gift. John MacArthur says, Faith is simply breathing the breath that God's grace supplies. I like that. It's simply breathing the breath that God's grace supplies. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, we've got two building blocks. To be a Christian is to know Christ and to be known by Him. What does it mean to know Christ? Well, it means at some point in your life, Christ, God, in human flesh, that guy, Christ, He summoned you into a relationship with Himself. He called you. And you heard His call and responded. And you responded because He he granted you faith to believe He is who He says He is. And He's done what He said He did on your behalf. That's two important critical pieces. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You need to know Him. Because your eternity hangs in the balance, right? We saw that in Matthew seven twenty one. One day you're going to stand before your Creator, and He's going to you're going to give an account for your life. And the only thing that's going to matter on that day is did you know Christ? Did you know Him? Were you in a relationship with Him? Have you entrusted yourself to Him? Does He know you? So how do I do that? When you do that. By simply believing that Jesus Christ is who He said He is. Who the, who the Scriptures tell us He is. It's God in human flesh. Perfectly righteous. Who came and lived the perfect life. Was crucified on a Roman cross. Shed His blood to die. Not for His own sins, but for your sins. The sins that have separated you from your Creator and earned you an eternal damnation apart from Him. 
Christ came to die in your stead, paid the wages of your sin, so that you might place your faith in Him, be forgiven of your sin, be reconciled to your Heavenly Father against whom you rebelled, and spend eternity with Him because of what Christ has done for you. To know Christ is to believe that. It's to believe that in such a way that you look at your own self in the mirror and you say, you know what, I'm a sinful man who has rebelled against Christ and from this moment on I'm turning around, I'm repenting of my sin. I'm just turning and walking a different direction. I'm no longer living for myself. I'm going to live for Him from this day forward. I'm going to run to Him and embrace Him. I'm going to receive Him as my Lord and my Savior and I'm going to enter into a relationship with Him. I'm going to seek to know Him. He's going to know me. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who runs to Christ and seeks that relationship will find it. I wonder this morning, is there someone who needs to do that? Maybe you're here this morning, you know a lot of things about Christ. You've got lots of information in your head. You know truths. You know pieces and parts of the Bible. Maybe you know lots of it. Maybe you could argue theology with the best of them. There's never come that time in your life when you've got on your knees, repented of your sins, and said, Lord Jesus, you have my life. I don't want to just know about you. I want to know you. I want you to be my Lord and Savior, and I will be your child. I repent of my sin, and I trust my life to you forever. Let's bow our head and close our eyes. That's you this morning. There's no magic formula. There's no magic prayer. There's no special words that have to be spoken. You simply need to hear Him calling your name. You simply need to turn from your sin and in your own words and in your own way. Confess that before Him. And in your own way, in your own words, submit your life to Christ. Give Him yourself. Lord Jesus, we want to know You. We want to know You. Because that's what it means to be a Christian, is to know Christ, to know You. But we don't want to just know information about You, not just some passive knowledge. We want to know You. We want to be in relationship with You. And that begins this morning. For many of us, that's just bowing before you and confessing our sinfulness. Confessing that we believe you are who you said you are. And submitting our lives to you. Becoming like Peter was, a slave, a servant of yours. A servant who you welcome into your family and make a child. I pray that in these quiet moments you would call out to some with that effective call. And they would hear your voice and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this moment you're summoning them to yourself. That they would respond and believe and trust you. For those of us who know you, Lord Jesus, we are grateful for what you've done for us. We recognize that you have done for us what we can never do for ourselves. And we have no grounds for pride or boasting in our faith. You have just simply been gracious to us. And for that, we are eternally, eternally grateful and joyful. If you gave us nothing else the rest of our lives, 
we would need nothing more. We give thanks to you, Lord. In Jesus' name.